0: Welcome to the Old Man Yells at Music podcast, a podcast where an oldish man talks at a measured volume about music. And now, your host, me, Roger Strip. Hello and welcome to the 8th episode of the Old Man Yells at Music podcast. I'm Roger Stroop. First of all, apologies for the delay in this week's episode. I just found myself constantly wanting to tweak it and tweak it, but there comes a point where you think it's never going to be good enough, so I'm just going to let it out, let you hear it, and then move on. This week I'm going to talk about opera. Not exactly, though. I'm going to talk about opera in a rock context. I'm going to look at the history of the rock opera and how it has evolved. I'm also going to talk about rock, some rock music that has some clear operatic influences. And I'm going to talk about a movie that qualifies as both, the 1974 film Phantom of the Paradise. The first rock opera most people think of is the Who's 1967, 1969 album Tommy. But that wasn't the first rock opera. There are a couple albums that are often thought to be the first of the genre, and one of them is by Nirvana. No, not that one. Before Long before Kurt Cobain picked up a guitar, there was a psychedelic band in London called Nirvana. And in 1967, they released an album called The Story of Simon Simopath. The album contained ten songs, and together they told the story of a boy who dreamed of having wings. He grew, but he never lost the dream. And this caused him to be committed to a mental institution. But then he somehow finds a, escapes the mental institution, finds a rocket, goes off into space, and meets and marries the girl of his dreams. It's not a very deep story, and a lot of the music I found to be drearily de- derivative of the Beatles and the Kinks. But it was clearly an attempt to use the medium of the LP to tell a coherent story, and that hadn't really been done much before that. And so we go to the next year and another London band called The Pretty Things, who made their own attempt at using a collection of songs to create a coherent story with their album called S.F. Sorrow. This story follows the life of Sebastian F. Sorrow, from his birth to growing up to falling in love to going off to war and experience, experiencing the horrors of combat and then returning home and having his fiancé die in a horrific accident. After that, he is led on a magical journey by a mysterious man, and this journey leads Sorrow to conclude that nothing and no one can be trusted. So he cuts cuts himself off from the world and resigns himself to a life of loneliness. This one is a lot deeper and more musically interesting than the Nirvana album, but it wasn't that much more successful. So now we go to May of 1969, when The Who who were already established as one of Britain's biggest bands, released their double album, Tommy. Inspired in part by guitarist Pete Townsend's study of the teachings of an Indian guru named Meher Baba, the album tells the story of Tommy Walker, a boy who is born while his father is in the army. Captain Walker goes missing and is pres- presumed dead. And Tommy's mother begins seeing another man. But the captain was indeed alive, and when he returns home and finds his wife with a new man, he kills him. Unfortunately, little Tommy Tommy witnesses the murder. So his parents tell him that he didn't see or hear anything, and he can't tell anyone. From that point, the boy becomes blind, deaf, and mute. His parents seek out a cure for his condition from multiple sources. And meanwhile, Tommy suffers abuse from a cousin and an uncle. Eventually, he discovers Pinball. And his enhanced sense of touch and vibration makes him the best pinball player in the world. Then his parents take him to a new doctor. And that new doctor notices that Tommy is mesmerized whenever he stands in front of a mirror. Tommy continues to do this at home. And it gets to the point where his frustrated mother smashes the mirror. The shock of this event restores Tommy's lost senses, and the miraculous nature of his recovery allows him to amass a following that sees him as a new messiah. He welcomes his acolytes to a holiday camp he opens, where he invites them to wear earplugs and blindfolds and play pinball in order to discover the enlightenment he found during his time time without those senses. His would-be disciples reject this idea and leave, but Tommy seems unfazed by this content to retreat into himself and the internal life that he has built all those years. Tommy may not have been the first rock opera, but it certainly was the first one to make a widespread impact. The Who put together an ambitious story about childhood trauma, the search for meaning, the nature of fame, and the power of the mind, and they they had the clout to flesh out that story with an appropriately big sound. The album was instantly acclaimed, and it was a commercial success. To date, it has sold an estimated 20 million copies worldwide. It was turned into a hit movie in 1975 and a Broadway musical in 1992. It immediately made the rock opera both artistically and commercially viable. The next rock opera to enter the pop culture mainstream was the creation of a young English composing duo, lyricist Tim Rice and composer Andrew Lloyd Webber. In 1970, they assembled a group of singers and musicians to make an album of songs that combined to tell the story of the betrayal and crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Using rock arrangements and contemporary slang, Jesus Christ Superstar doesn't focus entirely on Jesus, but it also gives gives attention to the motives of Judas Iscariot in his betrayal, and it also speculates about romantic feelings that Mary Magdalene may have had for Jesus. It looks at the story from outside the bounds of belief, and that gives a new perspective to one of the world's best-known stories. The album became a big hit on both sides of the Atlantic, and over the next few years, it had successful stagings on Broadway and, and London's West End. It was turned into a movie in 1973. Rice and Weber went on to prolific careers both together and separately. At this point, rock opera was truly established but it wasn't like there was an immediate glut of them. Pete Townsend planned to immediately follow up Tommy with a science fiction rock rock opera called Lifehouse, but that was abandoned, although many of the songs appeared on the Who's 1971 album, Who's Next. But they did eventually do another rock opera, 1973's Quadrophenia, the the story of a mod named Jimmy and his coming of age. It wasn't quite as big as Tommy, but it's a, still a pretty sizable hit, and it spawned a mo- its own movie in 1979. Rock operas in the 70s were mostly the, the domain of progressive rock groups. Genesis's last album with Peter Gabriel was *The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway*, the story of a Puerto Rican youth's strange adventures in New York City. It sold well, but perhaps its biggest legacy was the fact that it gave Peter Gabriel an excuse to wear even crazier costumes than usual on the subsequent tour. And then, and then there was on-again, off-again, yes, keyboardist Rick Wakeman, who did albums based on the Jules Verne novel Journey to the Center of the Earth, and also the myths and legends of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. The second of those albums is infamous for being performed as an ice show. Yes, an ice show for three nights in London. And then, and as I mentioned in our 1990 episode, 1977, saw Jeff Wayne's musical version of The War of the Worlds. But the idea of the opera, of the rock opera, I'm sorry, did, it did take outside of Prague. Country songwriter Willie Nelson made his commercial breakthrough as an artist with his tale of an old west drifter, redheaded stranger in 1975. And in 1979, Frank Zappa, an artist who defies categorization, gave the world Joe's Garage, a story of rock and roll, sex, insanity, religion, unnatural acts with appliances, dystopian societies, and putting icing rosettes on muffins. Then at the end of 1979, Rock opera returned to the forefront of pop culture when Pink Floyd, the group behind the biggest prog rock, prog rock album of them all, Dark Side of the Moon, released The Wall. The Wall tells the story of Pink, a rock singer whose traumatic childhood caused it, causes him to build emotional barriers between himself and the world around him. This causes difficulty in his adult relationships, and he turns to sex and drugs to numb himself. Eventually, he starts hallucinating and seeing himself as a fascist dictator. But then he realizes what he has become, and he decides that he must tear down the walls he has built. The Wall was a huge seller, topping the charts in over a dozen countries. It produced the number one hit, Another Brick in the Wall, Part 2, was made into a 1982 movie, and was performed at the site of the fallen Berlin Wall by Roger Waters and an all-star cast in 1990. It was another big moment for the rock opera proving again that the right artist with the right story could make a culture-impacting classic. For the next decade and a half, a few rock operas came out. 1981 saw Kiss, who were looking for a new direction in a new decade, try their hand as a rock opera with Music from the Elder. I'm not going to talk much about it, because it may be a future tale from the bargain bin. In 1983, Styx released Kilroy Was Here, the story of a future where rock music is banned. That's also the album that gave gave us Mr. Roboto. In 1985, Jesus Christ Superstar lyricist Tim Rice teamed up with Benny and Bjorn from ABBA for an album called Chess, which produced the big hit One Night in Bangkok by the original Judas from Jesus Christ Superstar, Murray Head. Atlanta indie rockers The Coolies did their own rock opera called Doug. It's about a skinhead who kills a drag queen, steals her recipes, and turns them into a best-selling cookbook. Prague metal band Queensryche had their breakthrough with Operation Mindcrime, the story of a drug addict who is programmed to be an assassin by an evil doctor. In 1981, Florida metal band Sabotage put out Streets, a rock opera, about a drug dealer turned rock star named D.T. Jesus. Uh, none of... Uh, all of these had varying degrees of success, but none of them became like really big sensations. But rock opera would have its time again in 1996 when the musical Rent hit Broadway. It's an update of the Puccini opera La Boheme, exploring the triumphs and tragedies of struggling New York artists in the age of AIDS. Between the contemporary music the then-edgy themes and characterizations, and the human interest story of composer Jonathan Larson unexpectedly dying on the day of its off-Broadway debut, Rent became a Tony-winning smash and launched thousands of community theater renditions of Seasons of Love. It's also the reason most people now know how many minutes there are in a year. I believe it's 525,600. And it was also the first big role for Idina Menzel, the future Elsa from Frozen. Was turned into a movie in 2005, and a live TV special in 2009 and 19. And its impact on Broadway still reverberates to this day. As much of the musical theater that's been created since Rent debuted could be cr- classified as rock opera. From the genderqueer rocker story Hedwig and the Angry Inch, to the ex- exploration of teenage s- sexuality Spring Awakening to the hip-hop history lesson, Hamilton. As for rock operas by bands, the two biggest ones since Rent have been Green Day's 2004 album, American Idiot, and the 2006 My Chemical Romance CD, The Black Parade. Punk politics and an emo meditation on death. Since then, there hasn't been much. Queensryche did put out a sequel to Operation Mindcrime, so there's that but I'm sure someone will try someday. The ambition to create something important and lasting is always floating around, and whether it be a rapper, an EDM artist, or even a a rock band if they're still out there, someone's going to go for it. If I had to pick who who I'd like to do it, I'd say Daft Punk. After this, we'll talk about operatic influences in rock, particularly particularly in the work of one songwriter. Hello, I'm Roger Stroop, host of the Old Man Yells at Music podcast. If you like listening to this, I've got good news. It's also a blog. I've been writing it for over nine years, looking back at hits from the past from the American, British, and Canadian pop music charts. Right now, I'm mainly covering British charts from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. So if you can't learn enough about Cliff Richard, status quo, and singing soccer players, this is the place for you. I also do a Canadian chart recap about once a month. So if you need a Trooper or Kim Mitchell fix, I'm your man. And I'm also in the middle of a project to determine the most unique, interesting, and or just plain weird U.S. Top 40 hit of the 1980s. And to top it all off, it's the place to be to get the links to, to the latest episode of this very podcast before anywhere else. So check it out at BobbyGlovesCasey.blogspot.com. Why is that the URL? You'll have to go there to find out. That's the Old Man Yells at Music blog at BobbyGlovesCasey.blogspot.com. We're back going from rock opera to opera rock. When you think of operatic influence on rock music, you immediately go to Queen. I mean, what is Bohemian Rhapsody if not a condensed opera with some guitar solos thrown in? Freddie Mercury even recorded a whole album with Spanish soprano Montserrat Caballé. But I'm going to put Queen aside and talk about the man who, to me, is the king of opera rock, songwriter and producer Jim Steinman. New York-born Steinman began his career with ambitions toward musical theater. As it turned out, however, he was heavily influenced by rock, so his early compositions were somewhere between traditional musicals and rock operas. In the mid-1970s, Steinman staged a musical called More Than You Deserve, whose cast included a singer from Texas who was born Marvin Day, but who went by the nickname Meatloaf. The two established a professional partnership, and Steinman wrote a batch of epic theatrical rock songs, collectively entitled Bad Out of Hell. They were rejected by label after label for almost two years, but they eventually got a deal, were set up with producer Todd Rundgren, and Bad Out of Hell was released in October 1977. From the biker epic title track, to the breakup ballad Two Out of Three Ain't Bad, to that immortal ode... backseat teenage lust paradise by the dashboard light battered of hell is big 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 the songs are long the guitars are loud the drums pound and your senses are surrounded the lyrics are bombastic and far from subtle and meatloaf belts them to the rafters it's a record you have to pay attention to every bit of and it rewards you for doing so and people paid attention it sold millions And several of its songs are classic rock staples. The duo began working on a follow-up, but Meatloaf lost his voice during recording and had had trouble getting it back. So Steinman recorded it as this 1981 solo album, Bad for Good. Canadian singer Rory Dodd sang on a couple tracks, but Steinman took the lead on most of them. And And his voice just can't match the size of the songs the way Meats could. The album was a relative flop, but it did produce one hit in the Dodd sung Rock and Roll Dreams Come Through. Meatloaf eventually recovered, and he and Steinman reunited for the, 19, for the late 1981 album Dead Ringer. It went to number one in Britain, and Dead Ringer for Love, a duet with Cher, was a top five hit there, but in the US it was a commercial disappointment. The two went their separate ways for a while, with Steinman having the better of it. During one week in 1983, the top two songs in America were written and produced by Steinman. Number two was Making Love Out of Nothing at All by Air Supply. And number one, Total Eclipse of the Heart by Bonnie Tyler. Both are great songs with all the Steinman hallmarks but Total Eclipse is the better record because gravel-voiced Welsh woman Tyler was the first singer since Meatloaf with the pipes to match the scope of his material. Steinman didn't match that success for quite a while, but he didn't lack for work. He did more songs with Bonnie Tyler, including the, the Footloose soundtrack hit Holding Out for a Hero. He produced an album for Barbara Streisand, put together a theme song for wrestler Hulk Hogan, worked with the British goth band Sisters of Mercy, and made an album with a group of female female singers called Pandora's Box. Then in 1993, he reunited with Meatloaf for Bat Out of Hell 2, Back Into Hell. This time, Steinman wrote and produced, and the result is arguably the clearest fulfillment of Steinman's artistic vision, especially the 12-minute opening track. I'd do anything for love, but I won't do that. It's long. It's about love and lust and promises that can't be kept. It's got tempo changes and a choir and an ending where meat goes back and forth with a woman. It is the song that it had all been building up to, and it delivered commercially as well. The song captured the Triple Crown, number one, in case you need reminding, that's going to number one in the U.S., Canada, and Britain. And the album sold millions of copies. Steinman had one more taste of pop success in 1996 when he produced Celine Dion's hit version of It's All Coming Back to Me Now, a song he originally wrote for the Pandora's Box Project. Celine pulls out the stops to match the grandeur of the song. And for my money, she does better by it than even Meatloaf managed 10 years later on Bad Out of Hell 3. Yes, that happened. and over the, And over half of the songs weren't even by Steinman. So you can make up your own mind whether or not it counts. Since then, Steinman has done many other projects. In 1996, he wrote the lyrics for the Andrew Lloyd Webber musical Whistle Down the Wind. He has contributed music to movies and TV shows, wrote Meatloaf's 2016 album Braver Than We Are, and in 2017, he premiered Batted of Hell the Musical, a retelling of Peter Pan, using songs from throughout Steinman's career. The show has been staged on the West End, off-Broadway and in Toronto. We'll be right back to look at a a movie that I think is the ultimate fusion of rock opera and opera rock. Hello, this is podcaster Roger Stroop with another commercial for Linda's Lessons. You know, my wife, Linda Quigg, is a little uncomfortable about me doing commercials for her. She has this idea that she's somehow unworthy of being promoted this way. Well, I can assure you that she is more than worthy of a commercial. And if you live in and around St. Catharines, Ontario, and you are in the market for singing, piano, or musical theory lessons, she is infinitely worthy of your business. If there is music in you, she will bring it out in a friendly, enjoyable, and thoroughly professional manner. So look her up on Facebook by searching for Linda's Lessons. That's Linda with a Y. And check out her singing videos on the Facebook page. The lady can sing. And she does weddings. Just saying. And we're back to talk about a movie from 1974 that bridges the gap between rock opera and opera rock. It's a movie directed by a man who would go on to have several acclaimed hits and it features the musical and acting ta- talents of one of the most famous songwriters of the 1970s. It wasn't a hit when it came out, but it is now a cult favorite. And more, and it's even more than that in one particular city. The film is Brian De Palma's Phantom of the Paradise. And yes, I must warn you there's a lot of spoilers ahead. The movie opens with narration from the Twilight Zone's Rod Serling. He submits for our approval a man known only as Swan, a songwriter and producer who got his first gold record when he was 14 and has since been at the forefront of every major development in pop music. We are told that his new project is the opening of a theater that is to be the ultimate rock palace, the Paradise. We then see a performance by Swan's newest hitmakers, a 50s-style group called the Juicy Fruits. When they finish, Swan dismisses them and then begins to talking... Then he begins talking to one of his associates, Philbin, about his ongoing search for the perfect music to open the paradise with. During the conversation, he notices that one of the band's supporting musicians, a pianist named Winslow Leach, is singing and playing an original composition. Instantly, Swan decides that this is the sound that he wants for the paradise, so he sends Philbin to track Leach down. Philbin convinces Leach to give him the music a cantata based on the German legend Faust, under the pretense that Swan wants to produce Winston performing it. After a month of not hearing anything, Winston goes to the offices of Swan's label Death Records to find out what's going on. After being thrown out of the building, Winston sees Swan's limousine, and he hires a cab to follow it to Swan's mansion. He sneaks in and discovers a room full of young women trying to learn one of his songs. From talking to one woman whose voice he particularly likes, Winston learns that Swan is auditioning for Chorus Girls for the performance of Winston's Faust that will open the paradise. When Philbin comes out, Winston tries to ask him to let him see Swan, but he is thrown out. Winston returns to the mansion in drag and gets into the audition room, where he and several women are made to lounge on a bed and wait for Swan. Swan comes in and Winston reveals himself, but once again, Winston is thrown out and beaten up. Later, he awakens outside Swan's house, where two cops plant drugs on him and arrest him. Winston is sent to prison, where his teeth are removed and replaced with metal ones, as part of an initiative of the Swan Foundation. While in prison, Winston hears on the radio that the Juicy Fruits are releasing a record of his Faust Cantata before they perform it at the opening of the Paradise. Enraged, he attacks a guard and manages to escape back to the city. He barges into the death records offices and gets into the record pressing room and begins destroying records and trying to to destroy the record press. A security guard interrupts him. And while trying to escape, Winston falls into the record press, which burns his face and destroys his vocal cords. He gets out and flees and is chased to the river, where he falls in, presumably to his death. The next day, however, a disfigured Winston slips into the paradise during a rehearsal. He goes to the theater's prop room and finds a mask and a cape. Then, while the Juicy Fruits, who are now known as the Beach Bums, are performing a surf rock version of one of Winston's songs. Winston sets off an explosion that halts the rehearsal. Swan realizes that the saboteur must be Winston, and he calls him by name when the disguised composer confronts him. Swan convinces Winston that he's not will- that he's willing to put together a new, better group to form to perform Faust if Winston agrees to cooperate. Winston joins Swan in the balcony as he holds actual auditions for the show. And what do you know, the woman who impressed Winston as, at Swan's mansion, whose name is Phoenix, is one of the candidates. She impresses Swan, and he, and he agrees to make her the star and allow Winston to re- to rewrite the cantata, especially for her. He gets Winston to sign a mysterious contract in blood, and then gives him a room to write it as well as electronic devices that allow him to sing and speak. Winston spends his days exhaustively writing, with the help of drugs Swan provides. Swan, however, decides that Phoenix is too perfect, so he relegates her to a backup singer and instead gives the lead role to a glam rock singer named Beef. When you think of Beef, think David Bowie meets Tim Curry in the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Swan doesn't tell Winston this, however, and once the cantata is finished, Swan takes it while Winston is sleeping and has Winston's room sealed with bricks. When Winston discovers that his work is gone, he figures out that he's been betrayed and he somehow breaks through the brick wall and assaults Swan's goons to escape. Finding Beef showering in his dressing room on the night of the Paradise opening, Winston warns him that anyone other than Phoenix who sings his music will die. Scared, Beef tries to leave, but he is caught by Philbin and coerced into performing. Backed by the former Juicy Fruits, now the goth glam Undeads, Beef sings the song Life at Last. Seeing this, Winston rigs up a prop to electrocute him. The crowd, assuming that this is part of the show, goes wild. Philbin realizing that Winston has made good on his threat, sends out Phoenix to sing. With Winston in the rafters directing a spotlight on her, she performs the song Old Souls, and the crowd loves it. Afterwards, Swan finds her in her dressing room, and having been intoxicated by the adulation of the audience, Phoenix agrees to to perform the rest of the cantata the following night, and she also agrees to go home with him. But before she goes to meet him in his car, Phoenix is lured up to the roof of the theater by the Phantom, who tells her that he is Winston and that Swan is not who he seems. She doesn't believe him, and, and she goes home with Swan. Winston follows them, and upon seeing the two of them in bed together, he stabs himself in the heart. Later, Swan finds Winston on his lawn, and when he removes the knife, Winston wakes up. Swan informs Winston that due to the contract... Winston cannot die until Swan dies. Winston then stabs Swan, but it has no effect, because Swan is bound by a similar contract. (coughs) It is announced that the finale of Faust will be the actual wedding of Swan and Phoenix. Desperate to find a way to stop it, Winston breaks back into death records, and he finds a room full of reels of videotape. Playing one, he sees that one day years earlier, Swan had decided to commit suicide in his mirror-lined bathroom because he didn't want to use his youthful looks. Before he does, however, his reflection in one of the mirrors talks back to him, offering him the chance at eternal youth. Swan signs a contract in blood and is told that he must protect the videotape of of his contract signing, for for if it is destroyed his body will begin to reflect his actual age. The tape also shows Winston's own contract signing and then shows Swan making a half-asleep Phoenix sign a contract. Then a monitor showing a live feed from backstage at the theater reveals Swan telling a hitman to shoot Phoenix at a certain point in the wedding ceremony. Winston sets the tape room on fire and heads for the paradise. On stage, Phoenix and a masked swan are taking their vows. As the gunman is about to shoot Phoenix, Winston assaults him, causing him to instead kill Philbin, who is performing the ceremony. Winston then uses a curtain to swing down to the stage and remove Swan's mask, revealing his now aged face. An (coughs) An angry swan tries to strangle Phoenix, which will somehow give him her voice as per their contract. Winston stabs Swan repeatedly, killing him and and causing his own stab wound to reopen. As a dying Swan is attacked by the crowd, Phoenix realizes that Winston is the Phantom and embraces him as he dies. Phantom of the Paradise takes elements of Phantom of the Opera, Faust, and the picture of Dorian Gray to tell a story of love, power, and and the lure of fame. It takes itself just seriously enough. William Finley as Winston and Jessica Harper as Phoenix are fine in their roles, but this is Paul Williams's show. As a, chi- as a child, I saw him on variety shows as this non-threatening muppet of a man. But here, he makes Swan's self-centered, unrestricted evil very convincing. He even seems believably sexy at times. And he wrote all of the songs, and they're all great. My particular favorites are the songs he he wrote for Swan's Pet Band, the Juicy Fruits' opening doo-wop tragedy Goodbye, Eddie, Goodbye, the Beach Bum's Upholstery, and the Undead's Somebody Super Like You. And there's also a great closing song, The Hell of It, which Williams once sang on, of all things, the Brady Bunch Variety Hour. Phantom of the Paradise was a box office failure on release. It did get an Oscar nomination for Best Song Score, but lost to The Great Gatsby. Brian De Palma went on to make many hits, including Carrie, Scarface, The Untouchables, and Mission Impossible. But Phantom of the Paradise has a sizable cult following. And the center of it is, believe it or not, Winnipeg, Manitoba. For whatever reason, the cold city and the Canadian prairies loved this film like no other place on Earth did. It ran for 18 weeks at the Garrick Theatre, beginning on December 26, 1974. The soundtrack album sold 20,000 copies in Winnipeg alone, helping it to go gold in Canada. And its popularity made AM Records decide to release Somebody Super Like You as a single. When Paul Williams played a concert in Winnipeg in June of 1975, he was greeted like a Beatle. The city has hosted fan festivals in 2005 and 2006 and a recent documentary called Phantom of Winnipeg explores how and why this movie connected with that town. To me, it would seem like a natural for Phantom of the Paradise to be revived as a stage musical. In fact, none other than Jim Steinman toyed with the idea of working on one in the late 80s. The story was performed as a concert at a New York club in 2018. But so far, there are no concrete plans of making a fully-fledged production. I would love for it to happen. It'd be great if Steinman was involved because his sensibilities fit right in. And of course, Paul Williams should be part of it. And you know who are big fans of this movie? Daft Punk. Get those four guys in a room, let them figure it out, and then watch the money roll in. Thank you for listening to the Old Man Yells at Music podcast. As always, if you like it, share, subscribe, and or leave a review where you found it. You can also comment on the post for this episode on my blog at bobbyglovescasey.blogspot.com or on the Facebook page or Twitter feed, both of which are at Mr. B. Glovehead. And as always, you can follow along with the dedicated YouTube playlist I linked to in the show notes. Join me next time as we head back to look at the charts of February 1983. Until then, thanks again for listening. I'm Roger Stroop saying, Beef! Beef! Beef!